Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 471st episode of Constructed Chrism. I am your host, Mason. I'm joined by my co-host, Abe Stein. Abe, how you doing? I am doing great. You know, it's only Monday, but it feels like the week should end. How do you feel about that, Mason? I, I think I can't agree more. I just got back from The Gathering, which was a tournament with like Extra Life and raising money for charity and doing all that. And I was there Thursday through literally about an hour and a half ago. And I am a little tired. <laughs> So how did how did that go, though? It was really fun. I got in Thursday, and I roomed with Jerry Thompson, and I'm going to say our friend now, but it was his friend originally, Jake, who was super fun. It was great to know him. And we hung out and then played the Pioneer 1K on Friday, which I was, like, doing okay in, and then it sort of died, and then no one hung out. Played Modern 10K. I got owned by Hammer. And a story which I'll, I will tell off podcast to you later. It's very funny, but it's not worth going on the show. And then I got Wurzed in a really sick game. And I got up and I was like, there's like 11 minutes till Legacy starts. Called to Jerry. Was like, can I use your Legacy cards in the tournament? He was like, yeah. I run across the hall to get to him outside smoking. Grab his cards. Run back. Register right all my cards down. Just in time to play round one and got 15th. Hadn't played Legacy. A real Legacy tournament in like, I think, a year and maybe a year and a half. It was nice. I had some really sick games. Sounds like you have definitely been through the ringer. Yeah. I also played a 5K Pioneer the next day. But when I tell you that was kind of a husk of myself, met some very nice listeners that day. Got to give away some wristbands. But I was definitely like phasing in and out of reality a little bit. And then I like died, walked upstairs, took a shower, came down, drafted the Mutate Cube, had a little bit of a a smackdown on some people, let them learn about a little rate monster, called it a day. It was fun. Since stayed up People do be sleeping on the Tarmogoyf and the Tarmogoyf like creature. I'm glad. Well, that was a good event, though. It sounds like you had a whole team event by yourself. Yeah, I played a lot of magic. I played Mental, I did it all. It was super fun. Played Lorcana, did all of that. And, you know, just a wild weekend. You know what's more wild than that, Abe? It's always improving. It is the main point of the show. And this week, Abe, you're up first. How did you always improve? My always improve this week comes from something I've been working on doing at work it's actually something i've known is a, is a true thing for a while but i've never really had a reason to put it into place so it really comes from trying to just change the way i'm doing something really basic and really simple or better to make it more efficient which is that i don't know if you use mason the human brain can store like with five plus or minus two packets of information maybe it's seven plus or minus two packets of information at a time you know that yeah so basically like, yeah so like you know in this case numbers feel like a long number really easy to remember like three to four digits pretty trivially maybe five in a row but then you kind of have to reference back but there's a little hack to this mason which is that if you if you break those up into pairs and then consider it like you know you have three five you call it 35 when you're reading it to yourself in your head uh 35 is about the same size to most brains as like the idea of any other single digit number so you actually store more information that way and therefore for me where i work at a bank a lot of account numbers and phone numbers and there's a lot of numbers that identify things I work with and so and I gotta tell people what they are a lot and like you know help my help my employees a lot with uh work those things so I've been just changing my behavior on something really small where it's something really simple to to be this thing that's more efficient and it's really had me thinking about in magic how there are probably a lot of small little things I do that I can optimize further and really, while I'm working on this one at work, it's like made me inspired to think about ones that I can do in magic down down the line. So that's been my lesson for this week. That's great. Yeah. Figuring out how to do that sort of stuff really sort of, you know, makes life a lot easier, right? Yeah. It's like not only does it make it 
easier. Like it makes my job, like I feel like do this little bit of a, a cost up front of like reminding myself I'm doing things differently or like saying these things out loud and kind of catch myself doing it the old way. But I know that I'll get the dividends of like just thinking about it less or like tasks taking like just less time. And yeah, it's also just always good to to be willing to revisit something as small for me is, you know, reading out like a six digit number or a eight digit number as like, I can do this better and um, goes down to everything. In magic, so that's great. My personal always improving moment in magic kind of comes from some like realization after everything. So, you know, last week I went into the apex stuff and that went really well. And I drove up there Friday and drove home Monday, recorded our podcast from last week, then left Thursday morning. And now I'm back here. And I realized this on Wednesday night, but I was already, had, you know, I had sunk all the costs literally into everything. And so I was like, I'm going. But I was like, I just don't think I can do like that sort of quick turnaround and also fitting in like a bunch of people for in coaching on Tuesday and Wednesday. That way I'm not like cutting coaching off for most people, right? Like I just got as many as I could in those days to try and keep everyone sort of on pace. And that's just too much for me. And it really like showed and affected me. And I just need to learn that like, it's great that I have all these opportunities to like play magic locally and do it in paper. And, you know, even though it's involving a decent amount of travel and something I wanted to do, especially a lot a few years ago, I just can't do it all. And it's going to be less impactful. It's always going to impact me more and I'm going to have a less meaningful games and less fun if I like try and do all these things. And so like there's SCG Columbus and I think a week or so, which is like a full week off. But I think it's just like, despite that being close, I am going to probably skip it in order to maybe do the Apex event. Or I might just, you know, I'd like to do that one on September 9th, but I might not end up going to that because I'm doing Vegas the following week, right? And I want to have fun and bake the worlds and do the Ragaman tournament and all that sort of stuff. So basically the always thing moment was I can't go like that. And maybe I could have years ago, but I'm just older now and I just can't keep up. You know what I mean? Like kind of going, going, going. And I've got to have some time to relax and cool down and understanding your limits and sort of like, it's okay that you can't do everything and a reminder that there will always be more things to do. Yeah, it's really important to be realistic with yourself about that. Like I know, keep behind my curtain for, for the listeners. There's just been a couple of weeks recently, especially if my job has gotten more stressful where it's just, I, I get to the end of the day on Monday and we're here to record. And it's like, yeah, I just can't do this. Like my brain is too gone. It's better to to do that than to like put yourself in a position where you're gonna not be able to do it. And it's like totally valid to be burnt out and need rest, especially because with your job being magic and coaching, like that's that's a lot more mentally taxing and intensive than like most jobs you can work. And I know your your job producer is not necessarily on the same level of like like you're flexing a lot of the same brain muscles that you're using when you're actually playing tournaments and stuff too. And that's just really exhausting. So it does not surprise me that that's like, whoa, I gotta, yeah, I gotta relax for just a bit. Exactly. So instead of relaxing, I just, you know, gonna play a Lorcana 1K. Good work life balance. <laughs> no, but that, those are different muscles because it's Disney. Anyways, that is it for improving. I want to give a Patreon shout out to David. Thank you so much for joining the show, David. The show will always be free, but if you can support, go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. There we have sort of the Discord where there's a lot of people talking and sharing information and wanting to improve at magic. It's a really cool place and it's awesome to sort of see it blossom into its own thing. You can catch all of us there, including Spencer, who's actually out this week for some family stuff. And so we'll see him next week, you know, to do a pretty awesome episode. But today's episode is a modern rules of engagement episode, Abe. 
and sort of what sparked this and what do I mean by rules and engagement? We actually received a uh, a comment on one of our episodes recently just saying, you know, my, my question is, what are the rules of engagement for a modern metagame? I kind of gave an example of like what maybe they might be in Pioneer right now. and But really, you know, when we talk about rules and engagement, uh, I mean, we've done like entire... Uh, episodes on this i think for standard around the rc in san diego we did one i think it's something we're gonna do more of this is a really good way to get like a, a pulse check on the format like what's what's going on what's what's happening is you know what are the things you need to be prepared for and what are the things that you need to be keeping in mind when you're playing you know playing tournaments in, in a format so like for the pioneer example you know if you're playing any deck in pioneer you kind of have to be prepared for your opponent to either play an elf or play a Thoughtseize on turn one. You know, your deck kind of has to be good against that idea and, and have a plan for both those things because those are, you know, two of the most popular decks, two of the most popular openings that are, you know, really important to be insulated against. And if you have no plan for either of those, then, you know, you're not really showing up to play by the same, play with the same format in mind. So really, this is going to kind of be us going over, you know, what are the pivotal things going on in modern, either be specific cards or like clusters of cards that are kind of dictating what it is that you need to be prepared for, keeping in mind when it comes to the modern and what's kind of making things that way when you're making these decisions about how you're building your deck or what deck. And with that, I think there's somewhere we just have to start with modern, and that's the free spells. Grief, Fury, to a lesser extent, Endurance, Solitude, and Subtlety are four of the best cards in modern and there's even a subset of this was like force of vigor and force of negation as well where interaction has really become key and king in modern in a way that was not true if you played modern before modern horizons 2 modern horizons 2 really upped the power level of a lot of things and especially interactive cards and these free spells really dictate what is going on in the format and what's allowed to be going on because Things like Solitude and Fury are very punishing to creatures. It doesn't mean creatures are unplayable. If you look at the results and the, the data, all signs show that creatures are playable. Just the bar for what your creature can be has risen immensely in response to sort of this, you know, raising tide of Fury and Solitude. And then Grief, as players have figured out how to build the Scam decks or Evoke, have in, has in changed the format to where we actually now have like a Stompy deck, you know where it's like this deck that can sort of trade resource aggressively, get one thing and go the distance that also plays a good fair game and has a good mid-range backup plan. And the free spells just fundamentally change everything about the format and allow you to trade, you know, two cards for time for their one card. And that's a, a huge exchange. I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, we we're talking about modern, but in case you didn't listen to that episode, the free spells really, what they've done for a long time, especially before like, you know, something we get to here, in the one ring is that they made it so that you were able to now trade cards now for time to recoup the cards later. And that really opened the door for a lot of strategies and new, or even just old strategies, more fair strategies to, to be top of the heap in modern, because it meant that there's a lot of like good ways to get ahead on cards, but or like use cards like Renin six to make sure you're hitting all your land drops and be really dense on spells. And we saw expressive iteration be like cheap card draw, one of the best things in the format to be doing at the time, you know, really create this opportunity to be like, okay, well, if I can just recoup cards, then I can afford to two for one myself in the early game 
and catch up later. And that continues to be the case, especially as over time, if people have understood this, the format continues to condense around that being the norm. If you remember, I'm sure most people do remember modern before Lord of the Rings came out, um, where we got uh, the One Ring and we got Orcish Bowmasters as like the two big, big additions to the format. The One Ring really kind of started breaking rules that were holding the fine balance of modern together. You know, for a long time, one of the, the things about modern was that it was very difficult to get up on these cards, right? Express Federation pulling you had a full card for two mana made it so it was the most efficient in its class or outside of maybe Renin Six, which was able to get you lands. You could hit all of your land drops for just two mana. But that was like not right with the pitch elementals and even force negation, um, force of vigor. You need colored spells. So you need like it's, you can't be lands. So the best way to get a lot of card advantage was run in six, but you get these lands. So decks like creativity were really good because they turn their lands into material that they need to combo. For like really being the best run in six decks, the best way to draw cards. Now the one ring has changed that such that the free spells have gotten even better because you can get just actual raw material to pitch to your forces, to your, uh, you know, subtleties, your solitudes, your furies. All of it is just like one ring enables more of that. And kind of in the same vein, while grief and fury, which are kind of, they're not the ones that are really best played with the one ring. That's kind of enabled a, a different end of the spectrum in terms of the, the like four color decks is that in order to get under a card as powerful as the One Ring, you know, you really just need to play a super condensed game to get under it. So when you talk about, like, the rules of engagement, I think that one of them that's important to not forget because of, you know, the structure of of the format with these cards is that the One Ring makes it so you either have to be getting ahead enough that you can fight over a One Ring or beat a One Ring, but the turn it comes down, or you need to be like engaging in that game itself, right? You either need to be like trying to jockey for the best ring, or you need to be getting under the ring um, so that you can fight with all this interaction because it's it's just that powerful a card draw engine and it changes the math kind of on the ways that people are able to to play these evoke elementals. And yeah, we're seeing this like like you mentioned, Bowmaster sort of like the anti one ring card, right? And it like applies pressure and it's sort of like Bowmaster decks are typically trying to go underneath the ring and cause games to end. I guess also a lot of spikes sort of falls in here. And then the other, like, go big decks are either one ring decks that are jockeying for position or people that are going really big, right? And they're like Tron, which is going over the top of every one ring deck. And then Amulet, which is sort of the meta call if Tron is good, right? Where it's like, if you think Tron's playable, but you want to be a big mana one ring deck, this is the deck that beats that and it can still beat four color, right? And that sort of is where the metagame sort of balances out with, you know, one like third deck sort of being in here or third type of deck, I should say, which is the Cascade decks and specifically Rhinos, right? We're seeing Rhinos into a lesser extent hammer, try to go underneath the one ring without using Bowmaster to actually play the game where it's like, okay, you have ring down and I'm going to try and fight through two turns of the ring and hope that that little life loss you have actually catches up to you, right? And we're seeing those decks sort of lean on those free spells we just talked about, put a ton of pressure on people. And then from there, that's how they're fighting against the ring. Yeah, I mean, I think that if we kind of think about it as one of the rules of engagement be know how you're beating the ring 
or, or how, you know, what, what your plan is around how the one ring affects your deck, be it that you are your own one ring deck trying to out one ring the opposing ones while having the power of the card in your deck, or be it that you're playing a strategy that's going under it, you know, cards like Urza Saga decks, like Hammer, like the Cascade decks, they're really, right, they're saying their plan is to get under the ring, be ahead by the time it comes down to the point where they can either fight over it hitting the table, or they can just ignore the, like, turn it buys, you know, kind of really fight through that and, and disrupt through that. That's, like, the other half. You know, you kind of have to think about it as, as which side of which side of the coin are you on in terms of the ring, especially Cascade and especially Rhinos, where they, right, their deck kind of gets to play with all of its mana up all the time. Not only do they have a bunch of free spells, they also have a bunch of, like, they have this one three mana threat, then also a bunch of other cheap interaction. So they're they're fighting over everything until they're able to try to stick and resolve their threat, and they're able to fight a lot, right? They, they have the free spells and their interactive spells compared to just, like, you know, even something like Living End, which used to be really the best at uh, leveraging that free spells were so powerful on that side of, like, the, the fair ones that were being used to buy time, is that, you know, there's only so much interaction that can be done on a turn, and, like, griefing your opponent and then passing the turn so you can buy an outburst with force negation when you're playing Living End is just a really, really, really hard thing to beat. And Rhinos has the same kind of capability to be like, okay, I'll put the shields down now to cast this uh, bound outburst and get the these Rhinos out. But A, if I'm worried about just the one ring, you know, it's a sorcery, so I can fight over at my speed. And B, they have things like the que- like Questing Beast and, and stuff now to, to punish the ring itself. So it's really a matter of, you know, how is it that I'm beating that card? And that really is kind of this other half of the format of, you know, Ragavan decks. I'm going to get ahead of it so that when the ring comes down, I'm, I'm still competing. So I have this mana advantage, this card advantage, or, you know, one of the other faster decks like Burn, like you alluded to, uh, with Lava Spikes or Hammer to that degree as well, really forcing the issue on on the mm-hmm. opponent and i think that that's like a really important rule of engagement and probably the most important rule of engagement if you just come away really understanding one is that the ring more than people i think talk about even though people talk about it a lot the ring really defines right now what the decks that are good are and which representation of the ring decks um or the decks you know designed to prey on the prevalence of the ring and its importance to the format it really is like it revolves around the one ring rule model. You know, it's uh, not to just be kind of cute with that, but that, that's just really important. Yeah, it's and it tells when you see things like Happy Sandwich putting Orcish Bowmasters into the hammer deck, right? Just cutting Esper Sentinel and moving towards Thought Seizes and a couple Bowmasters in order to like put pressure on the ring and have a Bowmaster for opposing Bowmasters. And it, it's a really like big sign that like, Yes, there is more going on than just the one ring in the format, but you know, much like Lord of the Rings, the whole world revolves around it, right? And it's just like maybe too much of a flavor win. And the entire format really is shaped around this one card. And you can do things that aren't what we're talking about, you know, like at that charity event, Abe, there was someone who top baited playing Obosh, right? And we've seen Merktide decks, which are, you know, not doing the exact things we said, but are kind of playing by these same rules, right? They're trying to get underneath the ring, and then when they're, they're trying to like counterspell the actual ring, or the ring comes down, they have something they can do on that sort of turn off, like an expressive iteration to set up an answer for whatever they draw off the ring, and then hope that you know the eight damage from a Murktide or whatever really closes the door on them. And that sort of play pattern dynamic is a really big one to keep in mind here, and it's sort of 
talk about another rule of engagement to the format, and that's your deck needs to be aware of Ragavan, right? Ragavan is just actually in some ways a the one ring before we had the one ring, right? The entire format was warped around the card Ragavan. There were Ragavan decks, right? Like Scam, Murktide. There were decks that could beat the Ragavan decks, like Yawgmoth rose in prominence because of Young Wolf, uh, you know, a little bearing the lead there. Uh, we had Hammer, which really kind of shot up. And Hammer is just brutally efficient, but also sported a good Ragavan matchup, right? And then we saw Four Color, which sort of beat up on these mid-range Ragavan decks. And the formats always revolve around something, right? And these are things you have to keep in mind. And Ragavan is still a part of things, admittedly lessened by sort of the power of the one ring and cards like Bowmasters actually rising up to stop one ring, sort of incidentally hating on Ragavan. And we're seeing players, you know, what was once the sacred cow, now some players who have continued to do pretty well in Magic Online, like Twinless Twin, doing stuff like having two Ragavans main to side, and in the matchups where Ragavan is good, they have it, but for the most part, they just don't want to start at main. They want to have more things to fight over these battles, and I would not suggest that, because I think Moto is different in the real world, and you will run into those stuff a lot more than you will in the real world, but it is sort of showing what can be done, right, and sort of the implications it's having, and how that can be successful in those sort of higher stakes everyone access to all the cards formats you know something you said there about bowmaster and for me specifically it resonates because i have played so much hammer and that's been my deck for such a long time basically since modern horizon 2 came out is that like esper sentinel has kind of been forced out um in part because of bowmaster being a defining card in the same way that renin six was already a defining card but renin six you might get a card off of your esper sentinel if you're on the play or like you know even if you're on the draw you might get a card out of it you just it does something to it but the game is just so much less about you know a card like esper sentinel which was getting you incremental value um and making the game really condensed which is what making the right when the form was mostly about free spells and having time that was a lot of the rules of engagement was was built around that but now you can see that as bowmaster has been a really natural foil to that and proves to be a good way to get a natural amount of incremental advantage and in getting your, your additional mass token, get a little ping, like also just be like a little bit of hate for the one ring itself. You know, we've seen that the one ring is so much stronger that it's not worth playing those small ball games. Like expressive iteration is not the same card it used to be in the format. It's not really generating enough card advantage for people to want to like warp their entire game plan around making that the most important card. And Ragavan, if not for the fact that, right, it was the, it was the best card to play on turn one in modern. For this long and now it's not even a card that you necessarily want to play because bowmasters does such a good job of answering it naturally and the advantage it accrues is just about a different kind of game but because it's so powerful you still have to respect it and i think that's just still kind of the right if you, if you had to merge what's new about the format in the one ring and bowmasters which bowmasters isn't that much different than the old rules of the game for the format which is like don't let your thing die to run in six. And now it's it's more the case that you kind of have to take and synthesize both, right? Like the, the format used to be about, you know, getting ahead early and playing these really condensed games. And now the format feels like it's about being able to either play that kind of condensed game or, you know, win a game that's longer through a, through a card like the one room. So I don't know if you, you have much more to say than that, Mason. I, th I think that really when it comes down to it, the rules of engagement have to do so much with the best cards. And right now it's so much the the two new great cards and, uh, you know, the old best cards as well. I, I don't even know what more to say than, 
right? Being on top of, of the free interaction, right? Either being going under or going over um, or, or being in the, in the race. But I'd be interested to hear what your, your kind of take on the rules of engagement are. Yeah, I think the last thing that really is the culmination of really this Ragavan and Bowmaster talk is Scam entering the format as the go-under deck that still plays a fair game, right? We talked a little bit about Hammer, a little bit about Burn, a little bit about Rhinos, how these decks sort of went under, and Rhinos kind of playing like a tempo-y game. Uh, but Scam is sort of a stompy deck, where this is a term from Legacy that we haven't really seen too much in Modern outside of Eldrazitron, where it tries to get a big threat down and kill you and lock you out of playing some stuff. And instead of using something like Chalice of the Void, which we do see in sideboards to scam mostly for the Cascade decks, this deck looks to use double uh, Grief on turn one or, you know, sort of having a really strong start of like Ragavan into Blood Moon or like, you know, Ragavan into Dothy plus Thoughtseize. Those kind of lock you out and put pressure on the opponent games and take over. So, we're seeing, you know, double grief is the thing that's like kind of plugging modern and it's really hard to beat. The removal is incredibly efficient right now in modern, but it all sort of loses to the turn one grief with an undying effect up outside of solitude and path, which is, you know, some players have been toying with the idea of. And with that in mind, you really changes the rules of engagement because now your opponent can just on turn one put a four three into play and you lose your two best cards or the two cards they can't really beat, right? So it's like maybe you have one of your better cards like a Ragavan, but they have a fatal push or a Bowmaster lined up for it, right? And that really changes the rules where there is now a deck that rips you of resources and another deck that's trying to go over top of you in resources in a way that's like both are trying to beat you on resources in just completely different ways and it demands completely different answers of you. And really, you know, a, the only through-line cards is Leyline Binding as a thing that can answer both somewhat effectively, but even Binding doesn't answer a turn one grief. I think that deck really puts a lot of pressure on the format, and I think the One Ring decks are very good, and because they're so good, specifically for color, I actually think Tron is not very good for what's worth listeners. And if you love Tron, it's gonna it's good enough to win an RCQ. I do not think it is good enough to do much more than that consistently. And I think things like Four Color and Titan are better. And they are so good and there's so much pressure from the ring that other decks are allowed to be the best, like Scam, in my opinion. And Scam is just brutally efficient. It is incredibly good at grinding. It's incredibly good at winning quick games. And Abe, I have never played a deck where I mold a four this much and consistently win. And that includes Tron. Tron might have more functional hands on mold of fours, but when Scam molds the four and has a good hand, it's like very hard to win. I have won a lot of hands where it's just like, you know, Blackleaf Cliffs, Black Card, a Dying Effect, Grief on the play. And it's just enough to beat any bad seven. So your mulligans have to be extreme in modern. And even then you mulligan, you just sometimes just down what you need to answer Grief because you're down the raw card. So it is a huge, huge pressure on the format, and the format is still adapting to it right now as we're recording this podcast. Scam is like the deck that I think of as being the best at playing the games that are kind of decided before the ring can come down. Um, if you think of that as like the inflection point of the format, and much like what you're saying, right? Like, really, the scam deck just tries to invalidate having the time to get, having the resources to get there and playing this game that's small so that the incremental advantages it gets as well as the like really big haymaker starts it gets are both leveraged to the best of uh, of their ability. And yeah, it makes it a really, really, really scary deck that is also a part of 
like probably the deck that plays currently the best by the rules of engagement, right? It's covering its its bases in terms of having uh, its own free spells to cover cover what matters. It's able to shut down, you know, swaths of the format like Cascade decks through having like chalices and Dothy Voidwalker for you know some graveyard decks, and it just has access to tools to even be the mana decks like Bloodbird. Yeah, I think that's that's like a perfect example of where like why scam, why the the evoke deck is so good and was the most played deck at the Pro Tour is kind of reflective of that being so much of the rules of engagement. Would you agree, Mason? I have to agree 100 percent And it really shows that when you play by the rules, you get rewarded. <laughs> Jokes aside, I do think scam's incredibly strong. It does everything we sort of talked about today, right? In fact, the only thing it doesn't do is play the ring. And we even see some players experiment with that on the sideboard. So I, I think you know, there's a lot going on in the format. There are more than just the decks we talked about today. If you are listening to this and you're thinking, oh, I don't have a chance to win my RCQ with some deck that maybe doesn't play by these rules, it's still possible, I think. You're just uphill and you need to adapt to what's going on uh, the best that you can, right? And give yourself the best chance. And that's why these things matter so much. Because once you know these, you can start metagaming and adapting. And that's what happens with real churns, right, Abe? And this is why standard is so easy to adapt to. There's just less going on. Despite everything we just said, I'm probably going to play at least a little bit of that Orcs Bowmaster hammer list with thought seasons to think about it, just because I think that all makes sense. And like, we didn't talk about any cards that are necessarily in hammer in this, but there's plenty of decks that play by these rules, right? Like trying to get under a card like the One Ring or, you know, trying to make sure that you're still good against something like Ragavan, trying to seal the game early, or just having plans against things like Cascade. Like, you can have decks that do all these things without necessarily doing exactly these things, right? They're prepared for all of this and, and do it in a, in a successful way. And that's really, I think, an important thing to to take away. Like, I know that Urza Saga is a card that lines up really well against some of the most potent grief starts we were just talking about. Um, you know, I've beaten a lot of scam players by playing Urza Saga on turn two, despite my hand just being some lands after having nothing going on. And that continues to be true. There's still ways to punish those play patterns without being engaged in them. But it's important to understand what is going on in the big sense and what it is you need to be thinking about when it comes to all of the kinds of decks you can be playing against. And and I hope that as a listener, you kind of get a better sense of that now, having talked about the rules of engagement, because I think that's that's really the number one thing. That's going to do it for the main topic this week. I Hopefully, that helps y'all excel at the RCQ season, which starts one week after the Wilds of Eldraine release, in case you were curious. So you have about two weeks off right now. The season just ended. When you go to Atlanta, you can hang out with Abe and myself. And if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. That's a way to give back directly. But the coolest part, besides the Discord and also, you know, the sweet little benefits and whatnot, Abe, is you get to ask a question on the show. And this week's question comes from Adrian. Adrian says, for a format like Modern where many decks exist and you're going to a large event, do you play a deck with decent matchups and plans versus the top decks and make your sideboard very general to cover that many the many decks of Modern? Or do you play a deck with general matchup spreads and target the top decks with your sideboard? And Abe, I'd love to have your opinion on this first because you and I have been approaching Modern dramatically differently for the last two years now when it comes to deck selection. Yeah, so I mean, I can talk about things from kind of the hammer or the proactive side of things I like to think about it. And typically, especially in broad formats like Modern or even to an extent Pioneer, I really don't think about things in terms of like, is my deck one with decent matchups and then has plans against like, and then like using my sideboard to like 
cover decks, I really, much like we talked about in this episode, I really just try to think about the types of things going on and, and the cards that really matter. So, for example, like, for me as a Hammer player, what really influences the build of Hammer that I'm playing is the cards that I put to play against. So, like, when Creativity was the number one deck, Spell Pierce was an absolute must. You, like, needed to have ways to fight over Creativities and early... Um, some decks playing Chris Mario Command, some decks playing Renin Sixes, uh, well, all of them playing Renin, you know, Fables and stuff like that. Being able to have a card that kind of punished the opponent for just going for it, which you often force them to in Spell Pierce, was really, really, really important. So, you know, you just kind of played blue and made everything line up such that you could have answers to decks that were leaning on the pitch elementals to interact. Or you could have, you know, just whatever, whatever it was you needed to worry about from the pillars was what you wanted to make sure you were insulated against because your deck was going to be presenting your threats. I think looking at a deck like Scam, like you kind of, because your game plan is to be able to interact broadly with all these things, you get to be a little more targeted in how you're hating. But even that, you're only really choosing things where it's like, okay, without doing this, it's unwinnable. But usually not doing this because the way the decks are right now and how they're kind of, uh, right, like Cascade decks are just kind of an archetype where you can hose them with, with Chalice Lloyd, but maybe that also works against Burn, right? Like, you just get to have a lot of collateral damage with a lot of your more powerful cards. And so I would just think instead of about kind of the quality of your deck against, you know, decks that are perceived at the top, I would challenge you to think more about just the cards and interactions that you're trying to beat and then building your deck to do that. Because I think that's ultimately no matter what kind of deck you're playing or how good it is against certain things what is going to make you have the best deck for a larger tournament your plans are going to be a lot more flexible and a lot able to handle a lot more of the random things you'll encounter when you play a format as, as wide as modern so you know i've really taken a liking the interactive decks over the last uh oh my gosh it's like two years now we're closing in on it and that was not the case before i thought interactive decks were really bad and I think when you're approaching things from the perspective of like, you know, four color scam, etc. I guess I shouldn't lump those two decks together. They're technically different, even though sometimes I think they overlap. Uh, for example, with four color decks, I had this conversation with, I think it was Jerry this past weekend, where it's like, you know, sometimes I want to play one Flusterstorm, one Veil. They're both good against specifically the Living End Cascade deck. And, you know, Veil is something that will protect me from the force negationing or me from getting griefed by them, which is a way they can, you know, sort of clear the way for my interaction. And Flusterstorm stops their combo. And Flusterstorm might be better against that deck as like a hard target. And maybe you'd think they want to play two, but I really want Veil and it's much stronger against decks like Scam and Murktide. And so, you know, it's a situation where it's like, yes, Flusterstorm can be okay in those matchups too, I'm spreading my cards and having a lot of things that sort of patch up different spots in differing amounts, right? And when you're trying to be reactive and you're not presenting a game plan that you want to burst through what they're doing and sort of, you know, present like, here's my thing, you know, beat me or stop it, you know, like that's basically all those decks are asking, like decks like Four Color or Controlling Decks or Ragavan are like, hey, I'm going to sort of stop what you're doing and then I am going to assert my thing that will take over the game, right? So like an Omnath, a One Ring, a Murktide, those sort of things. So that's sort of how I've been approaching it when I'm playing those kind of decks. But when I'm playing a deck like Abe's mentioning, which I've played a fair amount of Hammer and smaller local things, I approach it a lot like what he's saying. And when I play a deck like Stompy, just like Abe said, I sort of pick a couple spots 
and I kind of go after them, you know, like I got chalices and EEs and that's like my rhino plan. And I have, you know, chalice for the living in deck and I have a couple of graveyard spells. And then those graveyard spells are also really good against miscellaneous combo decks. And I can bring them in against Murktide and they're okay in the mirror. And then I like, I literally sideboard fable, the mirror breaker, because there are so many fair decks and stuff that I think I am already pretty good against, but I want a little more juice because I'm main decking my blood moons. So I think my blood moons are stronger in the main deck right now than the sideboard. So my fables are there instead of in the main deck, right? But I could easily see myself having like three, three season Pyromancer and Fable or four and two either way. And then having the blood moons in the side, right? To be fair, I'm loaded up on blood moons at the moment. So, you know, there's like a lot of things going on and I'm building my deck. I'm really lending itself to the deck strength. So to answer your question, I personally with the opinion that I think it is better to cover a lot of matchups with as fewer cards as possible and have less 10 out of 10s these days because I think most great decks can beat their sideboard hate card. And so you can't lean on a 10 out of 10 like you used to in modern. It used to be Stony Silence against Affinity. That's game. They've got like a three of to get them out of it. That's it. That's not how decks work anymore. And I'd much rather have a bunch of like a card that's a seven all over the place and have that cover. But while I think that's maybe like if you, you know, put a you force me to say something one particular thing, that's my answer. In reality, I build my decks and I build my sideboards as one cohesive unit and I do what my deck needs me to do, right? If I'm playing Hammer and I'm talking about a Hammer sideboard Abe, I don't talk about how, you know, Reprieve can cover these spots where, like, you know, I could play Fluster, et cetera, and cover a bunch of things. That's not what I'm typically about, right? And same thing with Scam. Uh, you know, I'm not doing the thing that the Hammer wants, right? It's all very different and... I am building my decks to, I'm sorry, I'm building my sideboards to complement my decks. And that's what's going on. So I hope that was helpful. Abe, is there anything else you want to say about this? I know I just sort of went there for a bit. No, I mean, I think it's like, to answer like the nitty gritty of the question of like, is it better to play like just plans as top decks and make your sideboard broad to cover like all the things or to play a deck that's like good against the breadth of things and have your plans for the the more prevalent or, or top metagame things. I think that there is no correct answer is kind of where our, both our answers went, right? Because when I talk about Hammer, I'm kind of a deck that's generally good against most things. It's proactive and uh, isn't, you know, my sideboard is is kind of to cover a general swath of things. And, you know, when you talk about either four color or talking about Bioractos, you are kind of covering specific things with your sideboard to cover just the best things that might be your biggest problems because you're such a strong like well-rounded deck as is and it's there's not a better way to go between the two there's not one that's decided you know decidedly better it's really a matter of knowing which one is going to work best for you and having ma- making sure you're building your deck correctly so it was a really really good question and i'm sorry the answer is yes to both <laughs> yep i would say this really quickly if it was solved in exactly the way of doing it this question wouldn't be as good as it is the other way to get your question on the show is to go to YouTube and leave a comment. Fun fact, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, this episode was sparked by that YouTube comment. So in some ways, this segment's already happened, Abe, but that's one of the great things about having that comment section and being able to communicate with people in that way who maybe, you know, can't do Patreon or don't want to. And you can still give to CC and like you sparked this awesome conversation topic for us. And we just want to say thank you so much for leaving that comment and really being thoughtful about, hey, I think this is helpful for me. It might be helpful for others. And, you know, they might just expect us to reply in the comments, but if there's moments like this, 
this I think was really going to be really helpful for a lot of people. A lot of people, and you and I had this conversation, Abe, and I bet a lot of you who are listening to this can go amen, started during the pandemic and with Arena and then moved into Pioneer and are now, you know, very anxiously moving into modern and feel a little overwhelmed. And having even that baseline is so good. And we just didn't really have that lined up. And that's like a could be better on our part and an always improving moment. But thanks to you, we were able to fix that. So thank you so much for doing that. If you want to find the show, you can go to twitter.com at ccmtg. You can also go to youtube.com and type in constructed criticism. You can find our sister show on the network and drafting archetypes with Sam Black over there. And you can also like, subscribe, review, and comment if you wanted to support the show. That is one of the best ways to do it. It helps with the algorithm, etc. Abe, if someone wants to find you, where can they go? Yeah, you can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. You know, it's really where I do most of my content posting these days. And I also, you can find me whenever the NRG series comes around. Um, doing coverage with my pal Mason. Mason, where can they find you? You can find me over at twitter.com com at mason e clark you can find me at twitch.tv slash the mason clark i'll be doing the wild of eldrings uh stream whenever that comes around i'm really excited to play standard ape it has been uh, a long time and it's coming back soon i know it's modern season but i'm pre-gaming a little bit it's gonna be cool you can find me at card kingdom each and every week this week i'm writing about pioneer cards for Wilds of Eldraine. So that's going to be really fun. Just like Abe, you can find me over in the NRG series doing commentary there. I think, Abe, the next show is not until October. There's, a, you know, September's a busy month with everything in Magic. So, you know, I'll be at Magic 30, I guess I should say, which I'm very excited about for Vegas. Basically, here's the plan we're manifesting. Guests of the show over the last year, Abe, of Dom and Kane are both in Worlds. I'm manifesting a CC homies meeting in the finals to watch Kane and Dom win. And a homie wins no matter what. So I'm going to manifest a watch party at Vegas and slash, you know, I'll probably maybe do a tweet or something and come and say hi. And if you see me or I met you over this past weekend, especially if I met you later on Saturday night to Sunday, I am so sorry that I was like not very lively. I was I was up all night. I was doing stuff in gaming. I was just running on E, but always please stop me at events. Um, You're never a bother unless I'm walking in the bathroom. Then just, you know, give me a second. I'll be right out. Uh, But besides that, uh, you can always do those sort of things. And then you can reach out to me via coaching. You can do that at Twitter, which is at Mason E. Clark or via email, masonecark at gmail.com. Please put coaching in the description. That way I can see your email. And you can find Spencer at Spencer13Dev. He'll be back next week with our special guest, WatchWolf93, Jonathan Sakinik, the secret goat of Magic. Uh, someone who, when you talk to Magic players who really know what's up, you say Sakinik and it's just like, oh, everyone's like, that guy's so good. It's going to be so exciting to talk to Sukinik next week on the show. I I really can't overhype it enough. So make sure to check in for that. But Abe, before we go, what did you learn this week on the show? I learned that you aren't one of these Magic Online loving sickos who knows that it's Watch with 92 and not 93. Frankly, I'm never going to let you let it down. Oh, no, I'm a fake fan. Oh, no, I learned I'm a fake Sukinik fan. Oh, no. Uh, all right. Before I go, now that I've embarrassed myself, I'll just embarrass myself once more. I lost to Sukinik in that, to be fair, it was only one game, but I resolved a Tetsamok in Limited Abe for, I believe, eight or nine creatures and lost that game. That's great because 
I believe this was part of the match where our teams played against each other. Yes. And I just have no recollection because I think we were sitting on opposite sides of the table. In fact, I know we were sitting on opposite sides of the table. Yeah. I believe you beat Trey, former co-host of the show. I believe you the blue-red deck, if it sounds right. But um, No, that would have been AJ. I would have been playing black. Oh, you would have been playing Danny Cathro, for also former co-host of the show. Yeah, I've, I've just had CC's number for a long time. You name a coast to CC, I probably have a good story against him. Yeah, really. what, what's what's a great story against you and me? If you want to talk about your play makes no sense. Or <laughs> yeah, I mean, you made a play that makes no sense. Yeah, I, I I did everything right until saying pass the turn like an idiot. And sure, if I just bounced the Emory, then I would have easily won instead of just winning. Thank you all so much for, for listening to this week's episode of Constructed Chris, and we'll see you back next week for another episode of CC MTG. Oh,